It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there, but how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with the insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. Hey guys, as you know, I'm a big fan of passive real estate investing. And as a busy W-2 professional working in the oil and gas industry, this type of investing has been a complete game changer for me. It's allowed me to build income streams faster, access private off-market opportunities, and bring stability to my portfolio by investing in hard assets like apartments and self-storage facilities. So if you're looking to learn more about these types of opportunities, I highly suggest you check out Upstream Equity. Whether you work in the oil and gas industry like me, or you're a busy professional looking to grow your investment portfolio, Upstream Equity is your go-to source for passive real estate investing. They do all the heavy lifting for you, from building strategic relationships with best-in-class operators to finding quality passive income opportunities. Upstream Equity truly makes this a hands-off experience. To find out more, go to upstreaminvestor.com. Once again, that's upstreaminvestor.com. All right, let's get into the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Nichols, accompanied by our guest for the week, David Cruz Palmer. And today we are the two smart assets. For those not yet familiar with David, he has been in commercial real estate for over 15 years and is founder of Corridor Capital Partners, which is based in Charlottesville, Virginia, where they focus on syndicating investments in industrial properties that generate passive income and tax advantage returns for their equity partners. David, it's great to see you, sir. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for Awesome. Me. Yeah, pumped to have you on the show, man. Excited to dive into uh, industrial real estate. We don't talk about it too much on the show, so I know our, our listeners will be eager to hear more about it. But before we do that, we want to hear more about you. So tell us more about you and your background and how you got into real estate. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I uh, started doing commercial real estate, um, just a residential mortgage broker uh, right out of college. Um, did absolutely zero deals. And uh, got my. I don't know if you even got, I don't know if I could say that I got my feet wet. Um, but I was scared to cold call, um, scared to get into real estate, scared to do a deal. I didn't know what I was was even getting into, but um, that was my first foray into real estate and uh, um, figured out how to got a job after that where I actually ended up making about 200 cold calls uh, for a couple of years. Um, and right after that, I, I became a commercial broker. I was in San Francisco for 15 years, helping companies to find office, industrial um, space, and negotiate business terms, put together real estate strategies, looking at different markets and negotiating with landlords to find the best deal and um, figure out how a company could really just position their real estate to work best for them. So yeah. uh, so that's what I did for about 15 years after that. Uh, every broker you talk to will say some version of how they want to own real estate. Um, you know, it might be houses as investment properties, or if you're a commercial broker, you probably say something about how you want to do um, own a commercial property. I was in San Francisco where, you know, real estate is a hundred dollars, a sorry, it's a thousand dollars a square foot for commercial office space. And it's not really attainable. I wasn't sure how to, how to do that, but I knew I wanted to own something. And when I moved to Virginia, I started looking at some deals and figured out how to, how to put investments together. Um, also figured out how to, um, help other passive investors to understand real estate from the perspective that I, I gained working with exclusively tenants of space. I kind of have a, a unique perspective and lens on how a tenant sees the space. And, and I can use that to analyze a market the way that they would and understand supply demand uh, dynamics and um, also rent dynamics and 
Um, that's that's usually that's pretty much how I, I'll look at a market is to see what's availability, what can the tenant do that's in place if I buy a property or looking at a property with a tenant that's in place. Um, how much time is left on the lease? Lots, lots of different questions. I've got a we can, we can talk about it later, but I, I've got a, kind of a list of questions that I go through that I can share with you, with your audience um, for how to evaluate a market, how, how to evaluate a commercial building, industrial building, that kind of thing. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds great. I love that background, right? You had some experience in it. You decided you want to take a deep dive and get into uh, owning property yourself. And now you're pooling you know, together investors uh, to take down deals. And uh, you know, like I said earlier in the show, we don't talk a lot about industrial on the show, which is exactly why I want to have you on. So super excited to dive into that. You know, with that being said, man, let's just get into it a little bit and then uh, we'll dive into some more of the details later. But, you know, as we're all aware, things are a bit turbulent right now, especially in the economy, things are kind of kind of crazy. But uh, in your experience, how have you seen industrial real estate perform over, say, the last six to 12 months, something like that? Yeah, ind- industrial is still really hot. Um, there's a there's a shortage of space. No one's really building. Um, part of the reason there isn't a lot of construction is because interest rates are high. Real estate properties have end values are high. So if you want to do a development, normally what happens is if there's a shortage of supply and rents are going up because the supply is low, then you'll get developers that will build on spec and They'll, tar- they'll find a market. They'll say the rents have gone up 20% year over year in Georgia, right? Or Savannah or something like that. Um, there's a ton of demand um, because of all the headcount, you know, all, all the population growth in Florida. The biggest port is in Savannah. Um, so you'll get developers rushing in and building industrial space, warehouse space. Um, and, and there's plenty of that going on, but it's not nearly as much as it would be if um, interest rates were six and a half, seven percent whatever they are now. It's, it's really hard to, to get the margins that you would normally. So there hasn't been as much development as you would expect relative to um, the amount of demand that there is. So you can basically drop a pin in the map anywhere in the country. And there's a vacancy rate of between 3 and 4% uh, for industrial space. So there are different types that are more valuable than others or more desirable. And locations matter and cities matter and tenants matter. But if you go to a secondary primary market. You can go on a major highway. You can buy an industrial building that has a 16-foot clear height or, or higher. Um, and as long as there isn't some kind of major roof repair or deferred maintenance, um, it's probably going to be a good good investment. The The lease terms range from 5 to 15 years. There's a annual escalation built into the lease. Usually it's 3%, but it could be, you know, something I've seen 5%, the greater of 5% or, or CPI. Right. So, I mean, there's just an increase in rent and you can have a single tenant building. It could be a multi-tenant industrial building, um, a lot of different ways to skin it. And, and every building is um, different. It has Each building has its own story. So what we do is we'll look at different markets, we'll look at, um, make assumptions about those markets and uh, try to find buildings that have tenants that have leases expiring in the next two to three years uh, because rents haven't escalated to keep up with um, market rental rates. So if someone signed a rent at $5 a square foot with 3% annually increases and they've got, they've been in their space for three years, then they've only increased rent by three years, but rents have increased in Richmond, for instance, by 20% year over year. So that just doesn't keep, quite keep up. And so when you look at, when you do your pricing then um, you figure out what the value is and it's based on a cap rate, cap rate looks at the next 12 months of, of income that's coming in. Sure. And so the cap rate probably doesn't capture all of the value that you could get two to three years out when you renew that lease because that tenant doesn't have anywhere else to go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I do want to touch on one thing back. You mentioned, uh, you know, 
it's been on fire really industrial has and a lot of has to do with um uh, some demands, right? Like population growth, all that kind of stuff. So I want to touch on a couple more, if you can, of the demand drivers. It's really uh, accelerating this performance of industrial real estate. And like you said, I know there's a couple different types of industrial real estate, but if you just want to focus on the one that you're looking at most, that's fine as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's uh, there's the traditional high bay distribution logistics center. High bay just means like high ceilings. Um, anything over 20, typically a, new, a newer product would have 30 feet or higher. Um, we like to Tell a story about Amazon's newest location is in Southern California. It's 4.1 million square feet. Um, 4.1 million square feet. It's uh, for some reason people like to think in terms of football fields. It's 94 football fields and it's 97 feet tall. 97 feet tall is like it's it's incredibly high bay. So um, yeah, and uh, you know the the, de- the demand drivers. Um, a lot of it is this. Uh, just getting supplies to people. Um, there's a, a change in height. So normally, if 15 years ago, buildings would be 20 feet high, and now it's 30 feet, it's 40 feet. So there isn't, um, the more vertical you go, the less uh, you're you're solving for square footage on a linear basis, and it becomes more of like a volume type problem. So you can get more stuff into a taller building. So there's a shortage of supply for high bay space. And then, um, I think a lot of the reason why there isn't a lot of industrial is because no one was really planning for putting in industrial buildings in cities, right? They, they, you had someone who was a plumber and they needed a shop and they needed a roll-up door or an electrician. So the traditional, like after World War II, that's the kind of space that was built, 12-foot ceilings. Sometimes you had a manufacturing warehouse. And so that's an old building. Sometimes those would have high ceilings that you can use today. But it wasn't until we started having all this e-commerce that we needed these logistics centers with really high um, ceilings. And we've only been building them for, what, 20 years, something like that? Maybe not even that. And that's still evolving. And, you know, Amazon pulled back on a lot of their construction, gave back a lot of their leases earlier this year because this, this product type is still evolving. Pretty much everything that Amazon's giving back, by the way, was built before the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and is under 1 million square feet because there were not, I mean, if you, if you look at everything that was built before the year 2000, not a lot of just like large boxes that are a million square feet with ceiling heights that are over 20 feet tall. Sure. So um, the, the program is changing um, and it's sort of changing across the board. So you could look at Amazon um, because that's, that's the name everyone likes to talk about, but a lot of other companies that do similar logistics and shipping, um, that like target, right? Like target needs the same thing that Amazon needs. Um, maybe not 97 feet tall, but it's the same concept. They need a really big building near a highway, sort of near a city so that they can distribute effectively. And there hasn't been enough supply to keep up with this, this infrastructure concept and this space plan for the way that a company uses space. Um, so it's just a, it's a constant um, supply uh, need. Plus all those plumbers and electricians that need to roll up doors. That's the other product type that um, it's called flex warehouse. Okay. There's a real shortage to that. Um, there are a lot of people that have these types of jobs, right? Like, I, don't know, I go and I'll pick up salt for my well, right? Because I've got a well and I got to go to this place and they've got a roll up door and um, they got to, like they re- wheel out the salt bags and I put them in my truck and drive, drive home. Um, just all these random people that need roll-up doors to do things. They don't need 20-foot ceilings, but you know, they need 12 to 20-foot. 
and they need a roll-up door. And there's just kind of a shortage of roll-up doors. Population's growing, and so you just need more people to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, right on. And so, you know, you mentioned ri- uh, rising interest rates earlier and how that's really affected construction and bringing on new supply uh, in terms of, you know, warehouse buildings, all that kind of stuff. So when you guys are out, you're looking for deals, you're looking for properties, um, and you kind of mentioned your strategy earlier. How has the rising interest rates, has that affected you guys in terms of your strategy, uh, you know, with financing these deals and taking them down as you acquire more and more properties going forward? Yeah, great question. Um, it has. Um, what we've done is shifted to, um, there was always some interest in seller financing. Um, that helps with equity multiples and it helps with returns, but it becomes more essential, more necessary now because prices haven't, the prices have adjusted a little bit. Um, down from the heat of the market, but not enough to necessarily um, justify it. The, the returns are not going to be great um, unless you have a deal where there's just a lease coming up and someone wasn't wasn't paying attention or they didn't use a broker and you got it off the market from you know someone who didn't really understand what the value of their property was a couple of years out. And there's not a lot of that, right? Brokers are really good at their job. Um, they're good at calling people up and telling them what the value is. That's just what they do. And um, if you own a thing, you generally have an idea of what it's worth. There aren't too many people who don't know what their stuff is worth, right? So um, I'm, you know, I'm never out to trick people, but I'm trying to, I am trying to find a way to make sense of a deal that uh, works for the seller, but also works for us. And usually, the way that that makes sense is through some kind of creative financing, um, which is much more common in um, multifamily or, or single-family residential. Than it is with commercial investments. There's no reason for that. It's just commercial has always been, you know, you go to the bank and you're dealing with a business or a corporation that that ends a thing. And reason for that outside of it, it's just how it's always been. And also brokers aren't experienced with it. So they shy away from if you ask a broker, hey, I want to do, I want to get 20% seller carry. Um, but they'll say that doesn't make sense. We don't do that or, or something like that. But if they lose a deal or if the seller can get their price because of that, then that makes sense all day long from my perspective. And if it makes sense to them, you know, we can look at another building until they're ready to talk. Right. Yeah. It's all about coming to terms. Right. And I've noticed as a passive investor myself in the last few deals that I've been, or just, you know, previously, you know, it was all about, um, you know, adjustable rate, bridge debt, all that kind of stuff, three years, uh, a couple add-ons after that. But now all you're seeing right now, especially in the last couple of deals that I've invested in, it's fixed rate debt or seller financing or some combination of both, right? And uh, I think yeah. that's, uh, you know, if that's kind of what you guys are, I think it's kind of a blanket across the board, right? if you can uh, get that type of financing, that's the way to go, especially in, you know, today's environment. Um, you know, we talked about trends and stuff earlier. Um, and I think that, after speaking with a number of investors myself over the last couple of months or whatever, some of these, some people are sitting on the sidelines, just kind of waiting this out or whatever, seeing what's going to happen. Um, what are you seeing, uh, obviously beyond rising interest rates, what are you seeing as some other risk factors or trends that you're paying attention to, whether it's, you know, the economy or consumer demand or, you know, the ability to pay, buy stuff uh, for the consumers, all that stuff. Uh, how are you seeing, are you seeing any trends? Is there anything you're keeping an eye out for in terms of, you know, affecting industrial real estate in your business particularly? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, rent, changes in rental rates, changes in vacancy rates. So, um, there's this CMBS loans. Remember those are really big in 2008. You can pull lists of those loans to see who's delinquent. So 30 day delinquency, 60 day delinquency in, in rental payments or in loan payments. And so there's, there's actually get reported and you can study that data and actually target buildings that are owned by, um, a single person, or you know, sometimes it's one person, one one building, one loan, or uh, sometimes it's a whole portfolio that's affected. So that's the kind of thing that shows sensitivity in the market. And 
and weakness and maybe opportunities to go after a property. Maybe they maybe it's a tenant that owns it as a owner user, um, or maybe it's a maybe it's a an investor or an institutional uh, group that has ten properties and they're late on some loans, and so that could be an opportunity to go out and um, see if there's any ability to to buy that property. Or, or even um, you know, Blackstone and companies like that are still making acquisitions, and they'll buy big. They'll buy a company, and then they'll dispose of parts of it. So, mm. we're, you know, I'm in Central Virginia, Northern Virginia. They they bought a company that has locations across the country, and they decided to get rid of just the Northern Virginia assets. And when when Blackstone makes decisions, you know, they're way more sophisticated and have, have way more analysts than I than I do. But uh, but when they when they make their decisions, you know they're willing to kind of cut the strings on some of these properties. And um, I don't know if it's take a loss, but if they're buying it for us other properties that they weren't so focused on, um, like in this Northern Virginia area, for instance. Yeah, that um, makes a lot. And, uh, and we're always targeting sellers um, directly. We're all look at I'll talk to brokers. I love brokers. I was a broker. I think there's a ton of value, but I think going directly to the to the seller. Is where you can actually figure out um, what they need and what they want and what the story is, um, because that's how you can get creative with the financing um, is by just talking to the end user themselves or the actual seller, his or herself. Absolutely, yeah. Got to go after the opportunity. I'd love to hear that. So, you know, I want to talk about uh, this from maybe like a passive investor standpoint, right? So, uh, yeah. as the economy shifts and things continue to change. Uh, investors, particularly passive investors like myself, they're looking to place their capital in strong deals, right? They just they're looking for a safe haven for their capital. They want to put in something strong. Um, yep. And you know, many investors that I talk to, their first go to is either multifamily or self storage. It's kind of just what they know. It's what it's what they do. So stick with what works, right? But uh, I think there's some good reasons to consider industrial real estate as an alternative investment vehicle or something else that they should be considering putting some money into, placing some capital into, maybe something like what you guys are doing. Um, can you talk about why? industrial real estate is um, attractive from an investment standpoint and why this is something that passive investors should be considering adding to their portfolio instead of just, you know, maybe just, just multifamily, just self-storage, something else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, well, but, um, you know, the, the institution, the large institutional investors are putting their money in the family offices and the private equity firms. Um, it is multifamily, it's self-storage, um, some manufactured housing and also industrial. Um, those are, those are kind of the big four that that are popular right now. Industrial is unique in that the lease terms are really long, and I think it's unique from the others. I think the reason that everyone was so excited about the others is uh, largely it's because one, there's a shortage of supply. Most markets can support a higher rental rate. You can do you can juice the NOI from a, the after resale value, right? And so you refinance. But um, in a market where interest rates are going up, because you can't just refinance. If, you know, so We all know that someone who had a 4% or a 3% loan last year that was planning on doing a refi this year, um, and now rates are 7%, no one had that in the, their performance. And that wasn't really anyone's fault. No, we didn't see this coming. I don't think there was writing on the wall. You know, if there was like, who would have put 7% right. for their conservative uh, interest rate? And I think some, some people will be fine. Um, but you know, what's interesting with industrial is the length of the lease terms. We're not doing a play based on inflationary pricing that will increase values, um, which I think still holds true for those, those other asset classes. And there, there is actually a play to do that. And that's what, something we call a triple net conversion, where you get a, a property that has a lease structure um, where the tenant is paying for, that, that includes taxes, insurance, CAMs, the common area maintenance and utilities. 
And sometimes an old lease, like an office lease, would include all that stuff. And sometimes industrial leases include that. But what's market now is actually um, triple net lease, where the tenant pays all of those things. So they pay you rent, and then they pay all that separately. And similar to their asset classes, right, that react to inflation, this will guard you from the increases in inflationary costs. So like taxes always go up, right? Um, insurance goes up and all of these other costs that you don't really have any control over could go up. And so pushing those off onto the tenant and having them just pay you a pure rent plus annual increases in that rent is one way to avoid um, these in inflationary uh, pressures similar to those other asset classes. And then the... You know, to finish answering your question, why industrial? The leases are long, five to 15 years. They have annual escalations in the rent. You can get a Fortune 500 company, AAA credit rated tenant, uh, paying you rent for five to 15 years with predictable, you know, eight, 10% annual returns. And then rates are at 7%. And you know that, and you don't have to really worry about that until rates come back down. And if they don't, you still know what your returns are going to be. There's a lot of predictability and safety in it. And um, your NOI goes up incrementally and you're still being happy. And if rates do come down, then guess what? You can do the cash out refi and still hold the thing or you can sell it because you're going to get it again. Um, so I think you get the best of both worlds. And I think it's um, super safe and super smart investment in the right location with the right tenant. Um, we, we've got one with a Fortune 500 tenant with, you know, they had two years left on their lease and we're negotiating with them right now. Their, their rent was 30% below market and they're paying a gross lease and we're going to switch it to triple net it's it's um it's not super complicated but you have to find the right properties and it takes some time to find those and uh a lot of due diligence and that's kind of what we specialize in is figuring out what the right story is um and i, I think there's a, a really strong argument for industrial because you know maybe we just seven years single tenant or a couple of tenants and you skate right over this recession most recessions only last two to three years and usually as soon as a recession starts, the interest rates by fourth area. I totally agree about that. You know, I think personally for me, you know, as a past investor myself, having the stability in that type of asset is great, right? I mean, you know, you know, obviously we know about multifamily self-storage, but having that industrial component, uh, it would be another great addition to, you know, a passive investor's portfolio if they haven't jumped into it yet. So absolutely love to hear that. Um, David, before we get out of here though, what's the outlook for you guys at Corridor as we move into 2023? What's the focus there? Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, you mentioned dry powder earlier and uh, people sitting on the sidelines. I, I think about that a lot. I have some investors who um, were, were closing on investment in a couple of weeks. And there were um, a number of people that I talked to who just didn't, they didn't, they weren't ready to commit. They thought there were going to be some really big opportunities next year. I don't know. We're, we're still chasing opportunities and put, putting deals together and trying to figure it out one building at a time. And, um, we know what markets we like. And we're staying focused on those and um, just talking to sellers and staying engaged. I, I think there's still a lot of value out there. The goal is to keep putting together good deals. Um, I'm really curious to see what happens with everyone who's you know keeping their powder dry. If they actually really do find home runs that they, uh, you know, I, I haven't I haven't seen this um, this many cycles. Um, I haven't seen a down cycle as an investor. I've seen it as a, a broker a number of times, and I guess I've seen what other investors have done. Um, with their acquisitions in, in major markets. But um, I don't know that you just, I don't know how many home runs there are just by virtue of having dry powder. I feel like uh, maybe you're also losing out on some opportunities. I'm really curious to see 
how that how that looks um, in retrospect in a couple of years. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know what? I'm a big advocate of having some dry powder, but I think I'm more of an advocate. I I think I'm more of an advocate of velocity of money, right? Getting that stuff, you know, putting in motion, um, doing something with it while you have it. Right. Because, you know, while every deal might not be a home run or a grand slam, even if you hit, you know, a base hit or two, those are still going to be pretty good. Right. So I think just being always investing for me with, with some with some dry powder on the sidelines is is the place to be. But again, everybody's different, right? So, um, you know, this has been great, man. I've learned a ton about industrial. I think we could probably keep going for a while um, just on industrial in general, but, you know, want to be respectful of your time. Before we get out of here, though, tell listeners how they can find out more about you, your company, and anything else you have going on. Yep. Uh, Corridor Capital Partners. You can you can email me. Um, I'm also really active on LinkedIn. So, uh, David Cruz Palmer, probably the only one on LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to make sure to put that in the show notes so everybody can reach out, check you out. Go Go connect with David on LinkedIn, man. He's putting out some great stuff. David, it's been awesome, man. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Hey, real quick before we get out of here, do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast. We're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business. I promise this will only take you a few seconds and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for being awesome, guys. Cheers.